Would you rip the bandage, reveal the wound, truly comprehend its scale, force yourself to take action, or leave it be and understand enough to know without knowing, to sedate the mind rather than the problem, to embrace the void? This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Friends, to episode 50 of Embrace the Void, where we celebrate artificial numerical victories because it's the only kind we have left. I am your host, Aaron, and with me for 50 episodes now is my good friend, GW. How you doing, G-Dubs? I mean, we didn't really get a numerical victory back in 2016, so... Yeah, we're never going to get any sort of real numerical victories ever again, <laughs> or any other kind. So, welcome to our 50... Uh, extravaganza where we take a look back and a look forward and see how everything's going. How you doing? <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, looking back on where we started, like clearly we've gotten to a really good place because uh, our first couple of episodes were terrible and like we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. Uh, but I think we've definitely settled into um, our shtick, so to speak. Oh, I see. And uh, I think I think we can like call it at this point in terms of the worst of all possible timelines or a bad timeline that clearly I'm the winner because I flipped to the worst possible timeline and you flipped to the more optimistic. Oh my God. It's not that bad because all you have to say is Kennedy's retiring. Yep. Kennedy's retiring. Kennedy's retiring. And Ruth Bader Toys R Us is, is going out of business. Like it's just, it's just terrible all around. Yeah. Yep. I don't know if you saw that picture of Jeffrey in the giraffe in a, a <laughs> Toys R Us store that was empty <laughs> with his bag packed. It's the most depressing thing ever. I, the one that I saw uh, had him um, slowly being atomized, saying, I, I don't want to go. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, good reference. It was, it was so dark. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, um, this was has largely become in a lot of ways a lot of philosophy on our show, but we do like to check in on the politics. So uh, I think it's good to just stop for a minute and point out really how screwed we are on so many levels uh, and how voidy things have gotten very quickly. Uh, it feels like um, we've got uh, the Supreme Court rapidly shifting. We've got um, the fact that, you know, because the economy hasn't tanked yet. And, and various other factors leading to it looking like uh, there is less and less chance the Democrats will make enough gains against the gerrymandered House and the uh, terrible map in the Senate to be able to do a ton of things going forward. But we'll hope we'll continue to hope that uh, Robert Mueller drops something. But then uh, I got to say, you know, I'd still put my money on Trump being removed from office before the end of all of this. But it's been hard to maintain a lot of hope with regard to Mueller recently. I'm getting very nervous and like I really want I need to see them make some serious moves in the next month or two. Yeah, it seems like we were getting a lot of news not too long ago. I, I'm sort of I'm feeling that this is the calm before the storm. Like I it seems like we got a lot of indictments. We got a lot of people flipped, you know, a lot of uh, movement happened like there was a couple of months where it was just like one thing after then after another in terms of his indictments, um, in terms of people flipping or whatever. So, you know, we haven't heard anything in a little while, but I don't know. I'm kind of feeling it's the calm before the storm. Yeah, my, my fear is that there isn't enough that he doesn't that Manafort's not going to flip. They sent him back to jail, but it still seems like there's a, a, a decent chance that he's just never going to flip. Um, and that they possibly don't have enough for the Trump Tower meeting. And yeah, I'm 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 nervous that the whole thing is going to uh, not work out and we are going to be stuck with eight more, you know, six more years of this. Uh, I really <laughs> yeah. think that 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 people should 
accept that that is a timeline that we may be living in. Yeah, I, I haven't really ever put my eggs in the basket of like, he's going to be gone and everything's going to be rosy. Uh, you know, it, it's clear that the only way to sort of balance things is to get the Senate back and to get the House back. Um, I think the Senate is probably more important than the House, um, but it's something I, you don't hear as much about just because there's, you know, it's 100 seats compared to 535. So like there's a huge difference or 435. There's a huge difference in just the number of people running that you just don't see as much. I mean, I, we know that Paul is uh, Paul Ryan's going to be retiring, which is going to be hopefully a good thing. Um, I mean, he's going to be replaced by someone worse, which is well, which is hard to imagine someone worse than Paul Ryan. But I'm sure the Republicans will manage. Well, it's going to be an election. And like, I think up here in Wisconsin, the like Wisconsin going to Trump in 2016 was a huge surprise. And so I think that there's been a lot of political movement around here. I could say since I live here mm -hmm. um, that uh, I'm not so sure that Paul Ryan's seat is going to go red still. I mean, we can we can hope that like this this blue wave does show up like the numbers are scary because in order to flip the, the house, we have to do something like a plus seven or better overall in terms of our in terms of where this blue wave ends up in order to counteract things like gerrymandering. So are you wait, I, th I think you mean the Senate, not the House. No, I mean, the, the House in the Senate, we've, we need to hold all of the seats that are currently Democrat, plus pick up some very, very hard seats to pick up. Because I thought uh, <laughs> I thought we needed to basically win eight. I thought that's what I heard, but may, yeah. I could be wrong. No, about uh, those what numbers. I mean by, by plus seven is that's the advantage that Republicans have, like if uh, if the overall vote margins for the house elections nationwide are like 40, uh, 43 50 democrat or whatever you know what i mean like mm -hmm. we have to beat them by more than plus 7 in order to uh have have a good chance of retaking the house with their advantage with their strategic gerrymandered advantage and then it's it's worse in the senate which is i think why people have been talking about the senate even less is because um, uh, Dems have to pick up Arizona, which is going to be hard. That's the best option we have. After that, it goes to even more terrifying options like Texas or Tennessee. Yeah. So it's like it could happen, but it would have to be Robert Mueller recommends impeachment of Donald Trump in September and impeachment proceedings are going on. You know, or like they, they've refused to hold impeachment proceedings for a month by the time of the election or something like something really, really ridiculous has to happen, I think. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's going to be difficult to know, like how all of that's going to get thrown down. I mean, we know that like with Nixon, what happened was like when the indictments came out, when those tapes came out, that's when a lot of people flipped. And I, I think, yeah, I think there's enough conservative people who are so hardcore patriotic that like if Mueller came out and there was a tape or there was something that was pretty irrefutable um and I don't mean from a democratic perspective I mean act like objectively irrefutable I think that that could really change the perception of Trump in the eyes of his base I hope so I mean I think it's it's probably one of the few things that can save us at this moment and that's mm -hmm. that's why I think I you know I'm very sympathetic to a lot of uh, emotion that I am seeing online from the liberal side after the Kennedy sort of announcement. It's a real kick in the teeth. It's it's so ridiculous that he would be willing to hand over his legacy to these motherfuckers. Um, and it's hard. It's hard as a Democrat because th there are things that we can do. But at the same time, it's hard not to feel helpless in the face of stuff like him swinging lifetime appointments one by one far right and with with no with no controls no stopping it so you know my hope is that the democrats will hold off this um nomination until the election but that's it they, they they have no there's nothing in their power to be able to do that though that's the problem <laughs> well i mean there's a little bit in their power but you're right they, they don't have a good shot at it no no i mean they can't filibuster it 
they ca- they can't stop the hearings from happening, right. and they don't have the votes to be able to stop the confirmation. Right. What they can do is is attempt to exact such a high political cost. But you're right. Mm. It is unlikely that the Republicans will face any political backlash with their base for being hypocritical versus forcing through another pro-life conservative. That's I see. What you you mean. know what I mean? I, I thought I thought you were saying like. Democrats have something that they can do to to stop it from happening. No. And I'm like, they don't. No, nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing in terms of actual ability. They just all they have is but political cost. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. And and even that is is right. It's what we should do, but we have to be realistic about it's about its functionality. And then, yeah. and then there's this additional conversation that's happening among Democrats about um, packing the court when we regain power at some point to mm-hmm. correct this problem by filling it with more democrats basically more mm-hmm. liberals um and i've been pretty strongly against this online to be honest i think it's the wrong argument to be making right now and it's problematic in a lot of ways and it makes us sound like the bad guys when we are at a position where we should be doing our best to be the moral alternative to a vastly immoral empire um so but I understand it. Like, I understand the emotion behind it of like, well, well, fuck it. If these people are going to break every norm and do anything they can to nakedly seize power, why shouldn't Democrats do the same thing? And if, you know, here's what I will say. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and they replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg with another white pro-life conservative, then sure. If Democrats retake power and enough power that they could potentially pack the court, do it fucking do it um that seems fair to me but i i think if you try to make that argument right now the Dem- the republicans can turn around nominate people who are moderate pro-life conservatives and totally undercut your credibility as a party that's my view i don't know i i i think that it's clear that the supreme court has now become a political weapon and uh you know has been probably since the early 2000s so like i i have no i have no i have nothing but cynicism about the supreme court and i don't see anything fair happening in that world ever again uh whatever that might mean and i don't i don't have any hope of a of a suitor happening again um it's Mm -hmm. just it's not going to happen yeah i'm i'm sympathetic to that i think that there's reason to think that this this situation is not going to get better in our lifetimes so in, in staying with the sort of topic of like, you know, strategery, so to speak, what what are your thoughts on Sanders getting booted out of the Red Hen? Um, or, at, or asked to leave was actually what happened. I mean, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's a mixed bag. I think it's valuable on some fronts. It energizes our side. It, um it shows people what it would be, what it's going to look like if they continue down this road of like saying people can deny other people access. Um, so I think that it, it it could potentially be jarring to some moderates who maybe weren't paying that much attention to the masterpiece cake thing, but might sit up and pay attention to something like this. I don't know. Um, I also don't think that the, the first th- moral thing that I'm concerned with is optics when I'm, the staff of that establishment like if they don't want to serve them because of moral disagreement uh and they want to make that statement and they're willing to accept the cost of that statement i don't i don't know if i would debate tactics with them in a situation like that i think i would say if that's your views and you honestly are committed to them then roll the dice and see how it goes what do you think uh i mean ultimately i think I think it plays into the hand right now on the right of this this narrative that the liberals are actually the intolerant ones. Uh, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think that's true, but I think that there are ways that it plays into that narrative very well. Uh, I, I do think the hypocrisy is also hilarious of like, is civility dead because we didn't serve Sanders? And then in the next breath, some fucking Republican went out and killed five reporters and injured multiple others. I don't have they confirmed that he's a Republican. Uh, I don't know, actually, <laughs> to be honest. Okay. Uh, 
uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm is, pretty sure that this is some uh, the, the the they haven't confirmed any political affiliations yet with that. That it has something to do with um, other issues plus mental issues of some sort. I'm not sure though on that. So yeah, um, I guess I'm mostly drawing that from like you know Trump's statements, you know, 48 hours prior, and same thing with Milo Milo sure. Yiannopoulos and his statements. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess here's what I, what I will say is. It's another situation in which we're screwed if we want to be the good guys. And I don't think we're built for not being the good guys. This has been kind of my take on the on the court packing thing as well, where it's just like. If you try a race to the bottom against the moral nihilists, or in this case, I guess the, the, they are moral realists, but they are some evil fucking moral realists who who will shoot the hostages like like they're willing to shoot the hostages. And my my impression of liberals is that because we are empathetic driven individuals when it comes to playing chicken with innocent lives we will flinch we we that's that's what the good guys do and that's why that's why in the void it's easier to break things than to build them it's easier to be destructive than constructive it's easier to undermine a system than maintain it and and the republicans are in a sort of continuing in my opinion creepy cultish death spiral um that is sustaining itself by a slash and burn kind of system that is working because it is easier to be a slash and burn system than something that actually functions well i think it's working because it's it's easier to use fear to drum up like uh unflinching loyalty right it's something that the republicans are extremely good at which is mobilizing right Right. like there's some issue that comes out and everyone stands behind it and it's something that the democrats uh you know in the last 20 30 years have actually been pretty terrible at and i think it's it's the biggest criticism that they haven't taken to heart which is why i think you know some of our leaders like feinstein we need to get new blood in because they're they're not willing to, I think, in in times where you should be putting your foot down, they're not putting their foot down, right? Like with DACA. Well, so I think the fear thing is uh, an interesting, it's sort of an example of what I'm talking about. You're right. It's much easier to manipulate people via fear and anger, but it doesn't have an end game to it except for escalation. And so what I think we're seeing is that their 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 30 40 year game of fear and anger amongst white people is continuing to pay off dividends but at the cost of an incredibly polarized near the breaking point of civil war kind of society that that's what i mean by this is not a sustainable model even as it secures them more supreme court seats for another 20 years yeah definitely it's definitely the monster that they've been growing that is now broken out and is you know ravishing the town mm-hmm. like you know that's that's what a lot of like uh republicans who are you know fairly moderate were terrified of when trump got elected and why you saw the like never trump movement uh which you know got sort of shot down because he actually got elected and so many of them were baffled by it by this beast that they created yeah and I don't have a ton of sympathy for them because I feel like they could have caught it sooner, but they're not wrong. Well, yeah, and I don't have any sympathy because they reveled and benefited from it. Sure. And like Paul Ryan's going to retire and be like, oh, not my problem. He's going to retire to a life of making money as a lobbyist. Yeah. Yep. So that's, uh, yeah, what do you think? Anything else from the avoiding news that we need to cover? think so i think we hit all the all the hot button things yeah i mean the facts on the ground for me continue to be it's easier to start a fire than put out a fire and it's easier to incite fear and anger than any of the constructive kinds of emotions and democrats can either continue to try to be the good guys in the face of that and see if it goes well and it might or might not or they can try to become devils to fight devils and see how that works out and who knows I don't really have I don't think there's any way to say either one of those methods is definitely going to work out better than the other one. I think it's pick your poison. Yeah, I think therefore I am Rene Descartes. Optimism madness 
that all well when we miserable. What's that? Chicken, Peter. You're just a little chicken. Cheat, 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 cheat. That me, Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> to celebrate our 50th episode, uh, we are uh, going to start a new ongoing series. This was GW's brilliant idea to uh, discuss in detail specific philosophers because... Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but philosophers have a weird, sometimes annoying, very problematic, sometimes habit of citing an argument via the name of the philosopher who made it and using names of philosophers as kind of a shorthand for making arguments sometimes. And that's, you know, confusing and problematic if you haven't read all of the literature. And it it is a bit of a gatekeeping tool that I think that... um, some philosophers use as a way to control the conversation. So we are going to try to help demystify all of this by making our way through the the better part, a uh, better better know a philosopher series, uh, our infinite part series, as we um, check out all of these individuals. Yeah, I need to come up with some sort of audio clip to get us into these. <laughs> yeah, better know a philosopher. Um, yeah, so who's who's going to be our first person? So, for our first person, actually, it's not going to be a person, ironically. Um, God damn it, Aaron. Philosophers are the you worst. You already are failing, <laughs> and you haven't even started yet. Well, so here's what I thought would be great, because somebody asked a while back, can you explain the analytic continental divide? Um, and I, what I thought would be good was, for our first part in this series, we would spend the, this episode drawing a map of philosophy, so that we could say, here are these different worlds within philosophy that these different philosophers fall into and that might make it a little easier for people to follow along alongside like when in time they existed and other other sort of ways to string together this this giant philosophical narrative i i hate to break it to Aaron, but this is an audio medium we don't actually have a visual component i don't know how we're going to draw things wait you can't do a map in the show notes I mean, I guess I could. I want a map. Wait, I don't think you want me drawing things, though. <laughs> All right. Maybe one of our patrons can draw a map of Philosophonia. <laughs> Philosophonia. Um, How close is that to Monster Island? Right. Hopefully not too close. You don't want to put that thing near the mainland. <laughs> um, okay. So this is, and I, I'm going to lay, I'm going to begin with like five or six caveats because that's what philosophers do. Right. First off, this is a imperfect, limited first-person perspective account of the history of philosophy and various philosophers. I am not a history of philosophy expert. That's not my focus. Metaethics and ethics is my focus. I know a fair bit about all of these different philosophers, but uh, I'm not going to necessarily be able to provide a perfect and unabridged account of all of even Western philosophy. That's that's not really something one could manage unless your name is Bertrand Russell and I'm not Bertrand Russell. So, uh, and that joke will make a lot more sense when we eventually get to Bertrand Russell. Um, oh, that was a joke. That, yes. That was a philosopher know. joke. The five people who got it. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> everyone else can, can crib notes later. Um, so this is also coming from a, again, liberal Western, um, industrial, privileged perspective of philosophy a a white cis male perspective of philosophy and i do think all of that matters i think that just like which kind of departments i was in matters which country i live in matters all of these things affect your uh, view or the vision of the the world of philosophy so all that being said um I want to break things down into a couple of different sections, and then I'm going to talk a bunch about the specifically analytic um, continental divide. So, But I want to set those two aside for a second and lay out the other groups of philosophy that we will eventually get to in our History of Philosophy series. Um, So every time you say mm -hmm. that continental divide thing, it it reminds me of, did you ever see that movie uh, Little Giants? Yes. That like football team and, and their big move was the annexation of Puerto Rico. <laughs> That's amazing. That's, I keep on thinking like when you say that it's some sort of like secret football <laughs> play. Yes, it is. And there's a really good um, uh, Germans versus Greeks, Monty Python philosophy, uh, soccer match um, sketch that everyone should check out. Speaking of philosophy and soccer. Um, so the other groups 
And again, this is a this this is the map that was imparted to me over my experiences in philosophy departments and also that I have sort of pieced together. I don't agree with all of this as a perfect way to understand the world, but I think it's useful to understand how philosophers as a subset of academia tend to see the world. So the groups that we're not going to talk about much today are the classics, which would be the in this case means the Greeks and the Romans. So Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Sextus, our Stoics, those guys, those are our classics, right? The pre-Socratics. Um, then you have the medieval period, which is basically Jesus time. Um, <laughs> it's, it's mostly philosophy of religion, people. If you're not doing philosophy of religion, you're going to read Aquinas and that's about it. You're going to read Augustine, maybe. Um this is also where I think you would see a lot of the Middle Eastern philosophy. What, what there is that we actually get to in the Western canon uh, would be grouped in during this this sort of period as well. Um, I will try to get to some of that stuff, but it is far, far outside of the things that were taught to me. Uh, so we'll, I'll, I'll try to do some reading on that eventually. Um, and then you have uh, the eastern which i would break down into two subgroups the indian subcontinent which is going to be the hindus versus the buddhists and then the rest of the far east which is going to be uh tibet china um japan primarily so those are sort of large sections in which people have chunked philosophy and again it's problematic i think to separate eastern and western philosophy they have many similarities there are many overlapping arguments um but this is the way that it is often sorted when you are looking at a philosophy department uh syllabus roster kind of situation so uh, okay so that brings us to our main course right so that's the the analytics and the continentals so for this part i have to tell a story and it begins with kant uh, as many stories do, though what that really means is it begins with Hume, but we'll we'll talk about that another time. Um, so Immanuel Kant, um, a very famous German philosopher, uh, right? He comes up with a variety of big ideas, and when we talk about Kant, we'll dive into these ideas some more. But there are sort of two main things that he does that leads to the analytic continental divide, okay? So the first thing is he distinguishes between what he calls phenomena and noumena. So phenomenon or phenomena are the things that we experience, things as they appear to us. Noumena are things as they are in themselves, out there in the world, separate from our experience. <laughs> Make sense so far? Uh, the second one, not so much. Could you elaborate more? So think of it like this way. Like, Kant would say, there's a table there, right? There's a thing we think we can reasonably infer out there in the world that our experience of the table corresponds to, that is on the other side of our ability to perceive it, that is a thing as it is in itself. Does that make some sense? No. Okay. <laughs> that made it worse. All right, so that makes you a Hegelian then. Um, right, so what he wants to say is, it, it's about, it's sort of about the idea of the mediated nature of experience. You don't experience the world in an unfiltered kind of way. You're never right. directly in contact with reality. You are only ever in contact with the reality through a series of mediated perceptions. Our senses. Yes, our senses. Right. And he would argue a set of what he calls synthetic a priori truths, things like causality, time and space, basic um, systems of orienting experiences that he believes have to come prior to experience. That's what the a priori part means, because they are essential for having anything like what we would call experience. So he would say you can't have experience if you don't already have the op the synthetic a priori of time and space in which to orient these various colors and shapes and sensations into uh, a framework that makes sense over time. 
So is it like a reference point? Like without the reference point, then you can't properly perceive these things? Sort of. I mean, it's like, like, it's like is, saying is that all way- perception is subjective. Right? Right. It's all radically subjective. And what we would what he would say is there is objective truth about things as they are in themselves out there in the world, but we can't have direct experience or knowledge of them. That's I that's see. sort of the and then there's like some work about what can we know about them and it gets very, very, very complicated. But just this like mm-hmm. the surface level, right? He sort of chunks the world into the things as they are in themselves on the other side of our veil of perception. And then the phenomenon as they appear to us, having been translated through our mind's eye. So there's like the objective table, and then there's the subjective table, and everyone perceives the table subjectively. Right. And we but, we infer but, that there is an objective table out there. I see. Okay, great. Okay. I'm with you. I'm finally with okay. you. I'm there. Great. So we're doing great. I'm on the, I'm on the trolley. We're going. It's good. <laughs> okay. So... The two schools that we're talking about here, the continental and the analytic, arise out of attacks against two parts of that. So the continentals arise originally from attacking the idea of uh, the, the, um, the noumena phenomena divide. So the first individual to sort of really go at this was Hegel. Um, and again, I'm not a continental philosopher, so amongst the... the uh, like uh, privilege slash sort of biases that I have. I'm coming from a analytic tradition. Now I will say I'm a very weird analytic philosopher. I have a lot of interest in what are traditionally non-analytic subjects as we, as you'll find out and would be hard to categorize as a traditional analytic philosopher because of that. But I also don't have a ton of experience reading continental philosophers because they're not really read that much in a lot of, Western philosophy departments in in America. Uh, There are specific schools that specialize in continental philosophy, but for the most part, it's read in other departments, not in philosophy departments in the Western world, uh, as I understand it. Um, Okay, so. So Hegel's issue was he thinks that everything can be unified under one theory, uh, one, one, one idea, he calls it. So he basically rejects the um, noumena phenomena distinction and and the important takeaway is that he sets the continental tradition on a vector of holistic approaches okay so the the reoccurring idea that i want you to have in mind when you're thinking continental is a uh, big broad romantic holistic accounts of problems huge when, sweeping when you just said the con- yeah when you said the continental i thought of like um uh that uh uh Christopher Walken oh, yeah. the Continental on SNL. Uh-huh. Wow, wow we <laughs> have some more champagne. <laughs> um yeah, so this continues on through Heidegger. Um on the continental side, you get the phenomenologists. So if you're talking about phenomenology, you're almost always talking about the continental sphere. And what you'll find out is there are various subjects that are more heavily focused on by the different sides. Um, so uh, these guys, and, and again, these are broad generalizations. Um, none of them, I think, are 100% true about analytic versus continental, but they're not 100% false. There are actual differences, I think, between these styles that are substantive, including the continentalists don't engage in the kind of rigorous breaking down of ideas in the same way that the analytic philosophers do. That's what the analytic tradition, that's what that means. So um, this arises out of uh, first G.E. Moore, who then passes it on to Russell, and then uh, one by one, their, their main attack against Kant was against the synthetic a priori. They believe that the synthetic a priori doesn't exist, that it's a fiction, fictional attempt to solve the problem, that all you can have are either a priori truths or a posteriori truths, which is to say things are either true logically in a necessary kind of way, merely in virtue of definitions, or they are true entirely in virtue of experience. So you get the... So, yeah, sorry. So, 
So would you be a continental because you think that there is an objective morality that we are trying to get access to? I am certainly my focus in ethics and meta ethics puts me off sides of traditional analytic philosophy. So while I did it, you did it. You did great. So basically imagine it this way, right? The continental philosophers move towards a kind of narrative, literary, non-rigorous, non-logic, like Heidegger was sort of trying to undermine the way that uh, logic might constrain philosophy. And so you get this, what I think is a very accurate criticism of continental philosophy, that it is often unreadable, incomprehensible, like it doesn't it's so densely packed with just ramblings that like it's very, very hard to follow sometimes. So I do think that when when you talk about the postmodernists who come up out of the continental tradition primarily, that critique arises because of this tradition of we're going to talk about everything, right? Nothing's off the table in our discussion in a sense. And we're going to talk about everything as a unified field of discussion, which is valuable, but it's also hard because it means you can't focus in and be precise about specific things as much. That's where the it, sound, yeah. it sounds like you just described that that Peterson Harris uh, podcast mm-hmm. that they did a long time ago, mm-hmm. where they they got into like an hour and a half like argument over the word truth. Yeah, and, it, <laughs> and Peterson had this super flighty, and like Harris was just like, I don't, I don't understand what the hell you're saying. Yeah, and that's. What's going on there, honestly, as far as I could tell when I listened to that, is that Peterson, despite being an anti-postmodernist, has a very postmodernist kind of analysis of truth. And so yeah. that was running up against Sam Harris's much more classically analytic account of truth and just not working well together at all. Um, it's pretty funny. Yeah, it is super funny. Um, so so on, so that, you know, you can think of it like on the continent, right? There's a big there's a big wild party happening, uh, sort of in response to things like World War II. Heidegger was a Nazi, um, and then you get like Sartre and Camus coming out of the resistance movement, um, existentialism. These movements all arise out of this continental tradition as account- attempts to try to answer these big philosophical questions, often through what we would, would, would traditional what we in the analytic tradition would say are non rigorous means you know, plays, stories, books, not attempts to understand what we really mean by this specific word or that specific word, but instead musings on the absurdity of existence and and how one can have radical freedom and things like that. All right. So that's going on over, over there. Whereas on this side of the pond, right, you have these individuals who want to, I would say, tried to rehabilitate some of the image of philosophy via making it more scientific by putting it in line with what was going on during the industrial revolution and the scientific revolution. Uh, they wanted to shift it towards logical analysis. So this is when you get the, the logical positivists. So while I am of the analytic tradition, the analytic tradition was very anathema to my worldview for a long time as it was in its fledgling infancy because it was trying to weed out what it saw as um woo style metaphysics basically so they didn't want to do any of the like silly metaphysical musings anymore that they that they felt like the continental people were obsessed with they wanted to just do logic and they wanted to do rigorous math and anything that uh didn't fit into that logical positivist model became kind of anathema philosophy so during that time ethics went under the wheels of the bus for a while so i wonder if those people like every seven years they go through a pond far then have to you know (laughs) right um so let me see um this is also during when you get people like wittgenstein who people want us to talk about at some point which i think uh i will i will try to do even though i haven't read a ton of uh, Wittgenstein, this is about attempts to, his main focus was on using philosophy of language to distinguish real philosophical dis- debates or challenges from debates that are really just 
people using language wrong, basically. And so he thought that a lot of pseudo-philosophical problems were really just things that could be dissolved if people would just get their language properly. And <clears throat> religion was one of, or not religion, sorry, um, morality was one of those. So him and Quine and people like that took a very skeptical view of morality as something that describes the world itself rather than just being some kind of language game that we are playing amongst ourselves. So you can see how these traditions really split off, right? One of them is moving upwards towards this holistic tradition. The other takes this very atomistic approach where it breaks questions down and breaks them down and breaks them down and, and breaks concepts down into their smallest parts to try to understand what they're made of. Um, and I think if we're being generous, we can say both of these traditions have valuable things within them. There is a value in synthesizing, that's the continental side, synthesizing together things that people might not originally think of are connected. And then on the other flip side, right, there is, a, 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 I think, a slightly higher value, maybe. I, I do lean analytic in my philosophical style because I think what philosophers should be able to do best is speak plainly and clearly about complex, confusing concepts. And in order to do that, you have to be able to break them down into their smaller parts without losing everyone in the process. So that's why I do think that it's good that the analytic tradition is in somewhat, in a sense, kind of ascendant within the Western canon. I do think that most human beings can get a lot more out of good analytic philosophy than continental philosophy, especially without a ton of help. That said, the analytic philosophers are often just as unreadable as the continental ones, but for a totally different reason. Instead of it being, you know, all crazy, woo, mystical, you know, rambling, it's super, super boring, super dry, over-terminological, like, just unreadable for human beings kind of writing. <laughs> really bad. Just really some of the worst writing I've ever read. It's almost, it reminds me of, like, or it sounds a lot like number theory, where, like, if anyone has ever taken number theory, like, chances are your final is a proof, prove that one plus two equals three, <laughs> which you're like, well, it is. Like, look, look at my hands. Like, no, but you have to, like, go through each of the symbols and what they mean. It's like a 10-page final. Yep. Yeah, that's that's analytic kind of stuff. That's what they love doing. They love logical proofs for things that seem really obvious to most human beings, right? So that's that's when these two views are at their most separate but i would say in the post postmodern world they have started <laughs> to come back together somewhat like in people like me to be honest like even though i was raised in the analytic tradition because i also had the eastern background and because i because i engage with eastern philosophy and non-traditional ph philosophical models um i'm i'm moving beyond the analytic stuff that you know was was basically demanded of people until very recently. E even even when I was in undergrad, people sort of looked askance at some of the things that I was interested in as being like, oh, well, that's that's not real philosophy. That's not hard philosophy, right? Ethics is still kind of soft philosophy. But I think that that is changing some, hopefully. Um, I think you see... You, you took some ED medication and getting harder. Right. Well, you see people like Singer... Who like have had had really substantial impact in the world by applied ethical philosophy. I think that has sort of forced the analytic departments to, if they want to maintain their relevance, start to you know reinvest in things like ethical considerations, even if it might seem less rigorous than than pure symbolic logic. Um. There's also some divide amongst on subjects. So, arguably, philosophy of mind, as we understand it today in terms of, um, you know, thinking about consciousness and personhood and those features, is largely dominated by the analytic tradition still. It's still, in the sense that most of the individuals who have been the major names within philosophy of mind have been analytic individuals like Hilary Putnam and Chalmers and De uh, Dennis and Davidson, these folks. Um, because in order to do, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because 
in order to do that, you have to really dive into like defining consciousness, which is insanely hard and defining self, which is insanely hard. So you have to like, I would assume, spend a lot of time diving into and really being very clear about defining exactly what those are and backing up those definitions. Yeah. And I would say, you know, it, it's a little silly, right? On the one hand to say philosophy of mind is dominated by the modern analytic tradition, because on the other hand, you have the whole th- tradition of phenomenology within the continental system that is incredibly focused on the mind because it's really, it's all it cares about is the phenomenon as experienced by minds. So what, Which is different than phrenology. Right. What I would say is that you, s- <laughs> <laughs> thank you, uh, Krieger. <laughs> um, what, what is, I think kind of cool is that continental stuff shows up in a lot of other fields. So I think you see more of the continental stuff in some parts of uh, psychology, for example. You see um, the philosoph- the continental philosophers like Derrida and Foucault showing up in um, English departments a lot. Uh, you see a lot of continental stuff being done in religious departments where they bring in, um, I think, I don't remember who they, which ones they specifically they bring in, to be honest, because I didn't take a ton of philosophy of religion. But my understanding is that these folks show up in anthro, they show up in sociology uh, because they often have a lot to say about power systems and power dynamics, that the continental tradition is very interested in assessing and breaking down especially when it became the postmodernists, the existentialists up through the postmodernists were very interested in breaking down uh, absolutist accounts of truth and uh, showing that much of what we think is true is embedded in our biases. Um, and even and this, this is one of the times where they, they critique the analytic tradition is that they think that the analytic tradition is a little too comfortable in their belief that logic and science have provided some objective perch by which to think about and observe these issues and so create an absolutist account of truth. So when you hear the debate between postmodernists and non-postmodernists, what you're seeing is a debate between the analytic tradition and the continental tradition. So would would John Locke be considered a continental and and that would go into the political science world? So so it's a good question. Um, I would put John Locke in the analytic tradition in terms of style. Same thing with most of the philosophers from England, um, Hobbes, um, and uh, Hume isn't from England, but from not from the non, not from the actual continent. Okay, um, it's a little tricky because they're before the divide really gets going in full. Uh, and again, this divide doesn't track well onto the classics at all because again, this is a somewhat modern distinction that has been made within the tradition um that sort of answer the question yeah uh the way that he does things like analyzes the concept of property john locke i think would 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 make it so that he belongs in the analytic tradition and he certainly is studied within the analytic tradition which basically means he's viewed as an analytic person because again we don't really do much of the of the continentals unless we are going to be experts in continental philosophy I think that's probably the major highlights that I wanted to cover in terms of laying out that map. Um, a lot more of the people that we're looking at are going to be analytic than continental, because again, that's my background, but also it's because there's a lot more of them that have made a substantial impact, to be honest. Um, but we will certainly cover you know, the main people within the continental system, uh, Hegel, Heidegger, you know, we'll talk about Sartre and Camus. We talked about Camus once already, but we'll do some more on that. So, yeah, as the as the non-philosopher, does it you feel like this is helpful a little bit to? Yeah, it sort of the defines these categories I didn't realize existed, which I think help color. Well, I see how it can help color each philosopher in terms of like where they were in history and who, you know, where their biggest influences really does define the type of philosophy that they wind up doing, or at least their contributions wind up being. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what we are going to see as we start to move through these 
philosophers is that every philosopher is defined in relation to the philosophers around them. Who are they? Who are they responding to that came right before them? And who are they debating that's right around them? Um, and who proceeds after them? Who follows in their tradition? So um, I think it's useful to understand this sort of broad map of of these different traditions um, and see. Uh, so I guess one other thing I'll point out is that the um, the continental philosophers have been much more because of their holistic method have been much more open to incorporating the other traditions, the Eastern traditions that I was talking about much sooner than the analytic philosophers. The analytic philosophers were the kind of <clears throat> the kind of stuffy white shirts who would look down their noses at any kind of philosophy that isn't done in logical form and not realize that a lot of the Buddhist sutras are pure logical forms. Yeah. So I, I would say, hopefully, my hope for the philosophy traditions is that um, these two groups will continue to intermingle and that the analytic philosophers will take from the continentalists a little bit more of the ability to see the big picture and why that is valuable when trying to talk to normal human beings. And the continental philosophers will develop a little bit more rigor in their holistic approach uh, as a result of engaging with the analytic tradition. Yeah, I got to get up that rigor mortis. That's right. Got to get, got to get super stiff. If you, if you get analytic for more than four hours, though, call a doctor. Uh, <laughs> I'm serial. Serial. Uh, all right. I guess that's pretty much that. So, yeah. Do you have a, a sort of like looking forward to who our first actual person deep dive will be? I do. I was actually thinking, um, because we're a dirty liberal hippie show. That our first deep dive could be into John Rawls, who is a very popular American philosopher within the liberal tradition known for the original position. So we can we mm. can dive into that thought experiment, talk about that a little bit some, and uh, the strengths and, and the American. limitations of his form of American-style liberalism. Um, <laughs> and then go from there. Great. Yeah, so uh, if anyone has anyone that uh, they really want us to dive into... Let us know. Email us at voidpod at gmail.com or, you know, on Patreon or Twitter or whatever. You know, Aaron's always on the social medias. Yeah. And especially like, you know, we've got all the major a lot of the major names right now already, of course. But um, if there are sort of lesser known figures who you're particularly interested in, who have a paper or something that you think would be really great to highlight, sort of drop us a line about that. That'd be great. Yeah, especially if they're women, because there's just too many men. Yeah, it is a sausage fest. Though I was really happy when, when we sent out the call for who would people like to hear about. We did get a really solid grouping of um, sort of non-white men, uh, which we will sprinkle in between all of the many, many, many white men. <laughs> I guess the class, the classical guys got to count as swarthy at least, right? Yeah, yeah, they're they're definitely, you know, Greek at least. Yeah, the male thing is the problem. It's just there's so many. <laughs> Is that what you think you are? A hero? Saved the world, didn't I? Once. Talk to me after you've done it a couple more times. So we've got an awesome hero of the week, and GW is going to tell us her name. Uh, Alexandria Osio-Cortez. Oh, thank God. She's, she's 28, <laughs> and she won the primary against a 10-term incumbent, uh, Joe Crowley, uh, in New York's uh, Democratic District. So... That's super exciting. Yeah, they're basically calling it the Dems and Eric Cantor moment, which is a nice sweet reminder that Eric Cantor got his ass beat a while back. Uh, Eric Cantor was the, the next in line after um, John Boehner before Paul Ryan, uh, but lost during his primary to a Tea Party person. Um, so this is sort of the flip side of that. This person was next in line after, in theory, was next in line after Nancy Pelosi um, and, and is no more that person. So... Yeah, there's going to be some upheaval within the um, leadership, which is good because the Dems need she, it. Yeah, and she's uh, um, um, uh, also a socialist, like a self-proclaimed socialist, not a like we're going to use that as a slang term socialist. Yeah, and and like not even like necessarily a democratic socialist. I don't think like right full-on socialist, like straight-up socialism. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I I have. Uh, I guess mixed like I'm I'm certainly of the democratic socialist persuasion where like 
I think certain parts should be socialized. I think socialized medicine is the better solution. Uh, yeah, me too. Uh, for example, um, I try to stay out of the debate about whether that's true socialism or not, because people always start shouting about what these words actually mean. And despite being a philosopher, because I'm an analytic philosopher, right? I don't want to get into the politics, so I just tune out. Um, no, <laughs> that's I'm not kidding. true. Uh, so, but I do think that it is good that we are seeing uh, a highly motivated, exciting, um, electable, far left, young. Can- young female far left candidate. Like these are the things we want our party to be doing. Someone that understands how Facebook works. Yeah. So <laughs> and not some 78 year old going. And so how how does one t- do tweet tweet? Is that the word? Yeah. And and to his credit, the the guy she beat seems like he was at least a decent dude. I saw him do a pretty impressive um, born to run impression uh, after conceding. That was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think we want to see new blood in the party on as many levels as possible. And this is a great sign. And it it came on the heels of a lot of new voters. It sounds like her motivating principle for her campaign was to talk to the people that people had told her not to talk to because they hadn't voted in multiple primaries three years running and so would never turn out to vote. So uh, if you are looking for hope for the future, it is that if those kind of numbers transition into the election in November and we do see a massive turnout in what is usually a lower voter turnout year, you could see a lot of numbers get blown out of the water. So that would be great, but we've got to make it happen. Yeah, it's it's nice. <clears throat> it's nice to hear, you know, the all these stories of like, you know, new Democratic people running for office and getting in and, you know, just new blood getting in. You know, one of my biggest criticisms of the Democratic Party is just how entrenched they are in, in just the everyday thing and really losing. I think like the Democrats, the reason why they were such a strong party was that they listened to the working class everyday person. And I think they've lost touch with that. And I think, you know, people like her can come in and be like, yeah, all you people who have been making, you know, $250,000 a year have lost touch with how people actually think and feel. And these are the things that are most important to them. No one gives a shit about how you look and how you get elected. Like, this is what people care about. And so that's that's the thing that's really exciting about her coming in. Yep. Yep. I think it's great. Um, I think it just we got to just keep keep pushing it. Right. Even even though we are a no free will, moral luck determinist show, uh, that doesn't mean that you don't do the things. It means you still do the things. You just realize that you are doing them. Because of forces beyond your control, but you let those forces drive you to do those things. So get out there, protest, vote, make noise. Yeah. Yeah, because she's an activist. Like, that's how she sort of really got into this is so she's very much like a Bernie Sanders who was like an activist and then got into the political world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's great. There were um, funny pictures of like a year or something ago. She was a bartender or something like that. It's ridiculous. Uh, so it's it's a beautiful it's a really gorgeous story, and there's hope that uh, we will see more of those going forward. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us for our 50th celebration. I'm sorry that I probably am horrible and sound full of vocal fry because I've l- been lying down for three weeks straight. Hopefully, next episode I will be upright finally and won't have developed some sort of lying around pneumonia between now and then. <laughs> be more... Uh rigid yep uh in your in your stance that's right i can be more anal and in my rigidity first we'd like to congratulate the raffle winners dave maslick burlesque platypus and peasants with pitchforks and glow sticks aaron should be contacting you all shortly we'd like to thank our new patrons scott john harrison at shaded spiriter grant webster carl heiss and michael warenko We'd like to thank our top patrons, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Dave Maslick, Abe, Corey Johnson, host of the Brainstorm podcast and the Hardcore Skeptic. CampQuest is hiring. More info at campquest.org. Mr. Nobody, Chad Trait, and Scott John Harris at Jaded Spiriter. 
If you'd like to become a patron, find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. As always, remember, you are the void and the void is you.